Please take your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 23. Back to Exodus 23, and we'll read today verses 10 through 19. And we'll stand, please, as we read the Word of God. Again, Exodus 23, 10 through 19. It says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman, and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, nor let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You can be seated, children. You may be dismissed to Children's Church. <clears throat> so back in Exodus... Once again, and uh, we've been discussing in recent weeks, of course, the social justice laws. That is, justice as it relates to how we interact with one another on a horizontal plane. Justice in relationships. Justice in humanity. And we're nearing today the end of what is called the Book of the Covenant, which by reminder includes chapter 20, verse 22, through chapter 23, verse 33. So through the end of this chapter. And so we're almost finished with the book of the covenant, which again is the application of the big 10 laws, the 10 commandments to daily life. And so God is instructing his people and giving them specific examples of what it looks like to follow his commands in life with one another. And so the focus, of course, has been social. It has been the neighbor. Remember the two categories that Jesus summarizes the law of God as having. First of all, love of God. Second of all, love for neighbor. And so the commands that we've been discussing recently have focused on our, our love for neighbor. How do we treat one another in a just and right way? And so it had to do with the social orientation of Israel. The laws that apply in God's court in regards to all kinds of human circumstances. And so we saw some of those circumstances being such things as how to interact with family members, neighbors, slaves, or employees, and also foreigners. What to do and what the sentence should be when someone carelessly or intentionally harms another person. How to handle those situations. 
how to borrow and lend in certain situations. Essentially, it just had to do with what is right in regards to all kinds of human interaction that you will encounter as you live as my people. However, today, we want to focus on the reality of justice, not just in the horizontal sense, but in a vertical sense. What does it mean for us to be just before God or just in relationship with God? And it might help if we have a, a, a clear biblical definition of justice because when we think of justice, we often think in, in context of, of criminal activity or in a judicial context where a crime has been committed. And so what needs to be determined is what is the just consequence for that crime? What is the just penalty in that situation. However, if we look at the Bible's primary use of the word justice, it is synonymous, it is the same as righteousness. And so, simply put, justice is to do and determine what is right. So, with that definition, what is righteous, what is right, what does it mean for us to be just in our vertical relationship with God? Himself, And that is especially the focus of these next commands, um, as we'll see in a moment. A vertical orientation. How are we just before God and with God in our worship as we approach Him? Now, I don't want to suggest a false dichotomy between justice uh, in civil conduct, in relationship with one another, and worship, because we know that those two things, as we've already seen from the Ten Commandments, are inseparable. How we worship God essentially will impact how we treat one another. Uh, and, and you can say that every human problem has some connection first to a problem with our relationship with God. And so they are related, they are connected, and so it's not worship and then also civil conduct among one another. Our obedience to God's law in how we relate to one another is an act of worship done in the right way with the right heart. And so God is saying numerous times throughout the social justice laws even that precisely because his people are representing him to the other nations because they claim his name and bear his name and because they are consecrated to be set apart for him, their conduct as they treat one another and their neighbors is an act of worship. Here God is telling his people how to worship through obedience and sacrifice. And he does so by giving them rhythms and patterns to follow. Rhythms and patterns for worship. The first thing we see that God gives his people is a Sabbath rest and renewal. Sabbath rest and renewal. Before we get into this, I'd like to ask God for his help, his grace, as we look at what we could simply see as a bunch of information from another time and another place an ancient time and place, which makes it difficult for us to apprehend and rightly apply. So let's ask the Lord for his help this morning. Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for this opportunity. I pray that we would see it that way. It is a privilege to have your revealed truth inspired for us by your spirit, preserved for us by your omnipotent power and your wisdom, knowing what we need to know so that we can know 
you so that we can see your glory and respond rightly to it. So Lord, I pray that by your Spirit at work in us, that you would speak what needs to be said through me as your servant, as your mouthpiece, that you would grant our hearts the ability to receive the truth of your word, that it might be fruitful and productive in us, that we might have wisdom and discernment to see what you're teaching us, even through these laws for your people Israel so long ago. In Jesus' name, amen. So, point number one, Sabbath, rest, and renewal. Now, the concept of Sabbath is not foreign to us, right? At this point, it was already in the Ten Commandments. It is the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And God continues to expound on what that is to look like here with two contexts, two applications of this Sabbath pattern, this six-seven pattern. Six units of time for labor and productivity and a seventh unit of time, period of time, for rest and renewal. And of course, this is following God's example of work and rest in creation. In six days, God created the things that are And on the seventh day, he rested. And he gives that pattern to his people for good reason. However, here we see some new applications and explanations of this 6-7 pattern. And so let's look, first of all, at a Sabbath, a sabbatical, both deriving from the same word, a sabbatical or Sabbath for the land, which may be unexpected. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 again. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So, all of the productive land, all of the crop land is included in this command that every six years... There's to be a year of rest for the land, for the cropland. It is a cessation of planting, of cultivation, and of harvesting. And it includes even, God says, the the perennial crops. Certainly the annual crops that would be planted every year, but also perennial crops like olives and grapes uh, that would continue to produce on their own. Now, clearly this would have had, if you if you look at it from an agri-science uh, perspective, it would have had an ecological benefit for the soil, giving the soil a rest, not demanding all the nutrients from that soil in a consistent way year after year after year, uh, possibly allowing for certain cover crops or, or nitrogen-fixing plants to help fertilize that soil again. But the primary reason we see here is humanitarian. God says, give the land a rest and, and, and stop sowing and planting and harvesting for the sake of the poor, so that the poor can eat. And so you can imagine in the fields where annual crops were planted, perhaps grain crops or whatever, uh, there would be leftovers. There would be seed that had fallen to the ground the previous harvest and then would come up the next year. And this was for the people to harvest, the poor people who had no land of their own or opportunity to grow and harvest the food that they needed. 
Not only that, but the grapevines, the, the vineyards, and the orchards, the olive orchards, would be available for poor people to harvest food. So again, we see a divine provision of welfare, welfare for God's people. He is a compassionate God, and he is providing for his people, even those who are disadvantaged in society. This command was to be observed as an offering of worshipful obedience. It is not just for the sake of the poor to be fed. Even though that is a good, gracious gift from a benevolent God and creator, it is also an act of worship. As we see, the very idea of Sabbath is for it to be holy, set apart to the Lord. And so this act of letting the land rest every seventh year would be an offering of worshipful obedience that they were to keep holy. But it also showed God's compassionate provision. And we should expect nothing less. All of God's laws, contrary to popular natural human opinion, all of God's laws are good for people. They are not just laws for him to please himself in some maniacal, sadistic way at our expense. All of God's laws, ultimately, even though they look to some like bondage, they are freedom and they are human flourishing. And so that is exactly what God is showing us here. And we should expect that all God's laws will follow in that purpose. And we also see a hierarchy of value. When we look at verse 11, we see that first of all, the poor of your people may eat. Then second of all, what they leave behind, the wild animals can eat. Now that's a really interesting statement. There are two beneficiaries of this food that's left over in the fields people and wild animals, and God takes care of them both. However, both are not equal in value. The language here in this verse gives a clear delineation, a hierarchy, or an order of value. And the reality is that the crown jewel, the pinnacle of God's creation, human beings made in his image to reflect his glory are more important than the animals that God has also made. Luke 12, 24 confirms this truth. Consider the ravens, Jesus said. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than they? Right? So God is taking care of his natural creation. God is taking care of the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. God is providing for them. That's one point. God takes care. He's a benevolent God over his creation. The second point is more important. You are more valuable than the creatures that God is taking care of. Therefore, he will care for you. And we should have the same perspective of human life. Sadly, that's a common truth that's rejected. Some people who have rejected God's value system either diminish the value of human beings so that they are worth the same as animals and simply part an equal part of the rest of the natural world, or they elevate the value of animals in other parts of the natural world or the earth itself so that those things are worth more than human life. Either way, it is an egregious mistake to undervalue and to neglect the, the human intrinsic worth that God has built into us because we bear his image. So the emphasis here is on the value of human persons because God cares for them even if 
They have little to offer society because of their economic position. However, I do want to note as well that it's interesting that it, that it mentions here that God is also caring for the wild animals. There's not an exclusivity here where people matter, animals don't matter. Animals matter. It's just that people's, people matter more. So God is caring for the wild animals and has instructed his people to give up their crops and their harvest every seventh year for the sake of wild animals to eat. I think that's notable. So, the application clearly, kids, it's okay to share your sandwich with the dog, okay? Unless, of course, your parents say it's not, in which case their commandment is more important than this one. Children obey your parents, right? And so the reality is, in all seriousness, I don't think any of us are guilty, or at least many of us, are guilty of overvaluing animals at the expense of people. However, we may be guilty of undervaluing the rest of God's creation that he cares for and sustains. And so there are all kinds of topics and issues that are popular today that one might think of when considering this issue, this context. How do we care for God's creation? And how do we land on, you know, issues of, of uh, environment, etc.? Well, here's something that we should consider. How can we be the best stewards of creation without foolishness and idolatry on one hand, right? So eliminating that ditch, not the foolishness and idolatry or naturism, and not the irresponsibility and neglect on the other. It's not the priority, right? We see that people are the priority, but it is something for us to consider because God cares about his creation. He called it good, and he put us here from the beginning to have dominion over creation and to steward it well. So certainly something for us to consider. All right. Now in this law, in this commandment, as Israel would have practiced it, did anyone notice a logical problem? If the poor and animals are only allowed to glean from these fields and eat every seventh year, you're going to have a really rough six years in between, right? So how, is this, how does this work? Uh, it's reasonable to assume, because there's no prohibition against it, that perhaps farmers would have staggered the rotation of their crops so that at, some, at every year, uh, at some portion in the land, there would be available food and crops for these people. So that's one sabbatical, one Sabbath rest that's instructed. The next one is found in verse 12. And again, this is the Sabbath that we see mentioned in the fourth commandment back in chapter 20. It is a rest and renewal for all people for their work week. It says, six days shall you do your work, verse 12, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman, and the alien, the foreigner, may also be refreshed. So this again was a pattern for the whole nation to follow and practice. And why? The purpose here God gives is for rest. It is so that you can rest, and so that the people who perhaps work for you can also rest. And so your animals who are laboring as well can rest. And so this is a good gift of God. And we love the idea of rest, don't we? It's such a therapeutic word. Oh, I need rest. Just the idea of rest makes me happy. Okay? And you especially feel that if you're a parent of young children. We need rest. And God knew that we needed rest 
because he designed us that way. We are not designed to be independent and self-sufficient. We need a pattern of rest, and God gave us that pattern. So it was for rest, but it wasn't just for rest. It wasn't just for the sake of having a day off. Exodus 20, verse 10, where the commandment is given, says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath for what? Not primarily to you, but to the Lord your God. And of course, the language of keeping the Sabbath holy, set apart, consecrated for him, has the idea, the connotation, that this day is not just a day for rest, but also a day for worship of their God. It was a weekly reminder of the covenant God had made with his people that they responded to by obeying this pattern. And the observance of it was sacred and reverent. This command is so important that it's repeated multiple times throughout the law. In fact, when we go to Exodus 31, we see it repeated again at the end of the book. And the Lord gives a solemn and sober warning. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, above all else that he said to this point, Above all these laws, your people shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you, that I set you apart, that I make you holy. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. And everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death, the death penalty, for not paying attention to this weekly schedule of rest. It was serious to God, and he commended it to his people under penalty of death. So it's not simply a matter of rest from the work week, but a question of worship. It's a matter of worship. And worship, of course, as seen in obedience, to take God seriously and follow his ways. It's important to note that when we think about Sabbath rest, this is not just doing nothing, okay? The, the result of Sabbath rest is not that I sit there and maybe meditate and, and don't lift a finger to make myself a meal or do anything like that. The idea primarily uh, is cessation from the normal, normal labor of the prior six days. So you're not just continuing on with this day of rest as just another day for productivity. It's just another day to earn wages. It is a break from the normal labor especially vocational work. Jesus, of course, helps us to understand what the Sabbath was intended for in the New Testament when he defends his disciples from the accusations of the religious leaders of the day and says, no, 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 it's okay. They're picking grain to feed themselves. That's okay. You're taking this too far. The purpose was not so that man would serve the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was for man. He also defends himself when he heals a man and then commands him to take up his bed and walk. And the, and the Pharisees are, are uh, you know, jumping on him for that, that this is a violation of the law of God. So clearly you are opposed to God. And Jesus says, no, it's okay to heal someone. Even if your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you will get it out. Okay? And so the idea of rest is true, uh, but also the idea of worship. It is worship of God uh, that characterizes this rest. 
So then he continues uh, in verse 13, and he comes to some worship regulations. Regulations for how God is to be worshipped, and with those regulations and with those established laws, reminders. God gives specific instructions and an annual pattern for how he is to be worshipped. It is now the application of the first commandment. No other gods before me. And this is what it is to look like in the life of his people. These instructions serve as reminders so that the people won't forget God. So that they won't forget, first of all, who he is. They won't forget what he's done and so that they won't forget what he has done said. And so first in verse 13, we see a solemn warning. What is God warning his people here? He says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. And this verse by itself is seen as the pinnacle, the climax of this whole book of the covenant, that it all rests on this the idea, the message is forsake other gods, forsake false gods, and listen to me. Obey me. Pay attention. This is the divine equivalent of a parent telling their child, look at my eyes. I need to know that you hear me and you understand what I'm saying. It's a comprehensive warning to take all God's laws to heart because he alone is God. There is no God beside him. It's also uh, proving the insufficiency and the inadequacy, the incompetency of other gods, so-called, among the nations. There is no other God, so don't even let the name of false gods come out of your mouth as if to attribute any worth or credence to them. And the name of God is important because a name identifies When God gives us names in his revealed word, they always have something to do with revealing who he is, what his character is like. Think about the name I am that he gives to Moses and his people. He is the eternal self-existent one. So the names identify the person who has that namesake. A name gives credence to the existence and the reality of something or someone. And so God says, don't name these false gods who are non-existent. They're not real, and they will not accomplish anything for you. Reject them and listen to me. Also with God, his name uniquely identifies him over and against all other so-called deities. Remember back in chapter 20, verse 24, when he instructs them again in worship, you shall build an altar to me uh, for sacrifice, And in every place that you do, where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. The name of God is important. The name of God identifies God above and against all other so-called gods. In Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved Idols. God will not share his glory. God will not share his worship. Right worship is exclusive. With that statement, to listen to God and forsake all other false gods, he then gives the institution of three festivals. 
three celebrations that were, are to happen annually, three feasts that come conveniently at, uh, at times in the agricultural seasons where their work uh, for one part of the season would end and another would begin after the festival. One preacher uh, titled his sermon on this text, The Parties You Have to Go To. And uh, all the introverts in the room just got a little anxious. Uh, but introverts can breathe easy because the purpose and the point and the focus of these festivals is not the people, but it is Yahweh himself. These are not merely, you know, community fellowship meals or national celebrations or harvest festivals even, but occasions for corporate worship. And I want us to note that that's how God instructs his people to worship then and now. Yes, we can worship God on our own. We have access to him because of Christ. But his plan for us is to regularly gather for corporate worship together as his people who he's building up, he says in Ephesians, into a temple for his glory. So corporate worship is the purpose of these feasts. Let's look at them quickly. The Feast of Unleavened Bread in verse 15. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. That would be March in our calendar. For in that month you came out of Egypt. Now, obviously this verse is clear, what, what they're celebrating. But it's also the, the name of the feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the month in which you came out of Egypt. This is obviously to celebrate the Passover. And deliverance of God's people from their slavery, their bondage in Egypt. This feast would make sure that generation after generation would not forget who God is and what he had done, the salvation that he had worked for them. Memory is a useful weapon in the fight for faith, isn't it? When we forget who God is, when we forget who he is with us and for us, and the promises that he's made to us in times of trial and suffering and doubt, our faith becomes unreliable. Our faith becomes shaky and at risk of being shipwrecked because we've forgotten God. God doesn't want his people to forget him. He doesn't want his people to forget his faithfulness. They needed to remember their God so that they wouldn't lose heart, so that they wouldn't turn after other gods, and they wouldn't walk away from faith. This record is also given to us for our sakes so that we see his faithfulness to his people throughout all times and we can continue to believe and trust. Now he also says that the worshipers, when they come, they're not to come empty-handed. Handed, right at the end of verse 15, none shall appear before me. When you come to my feast, you shall not appear before me empty-handed. And uh, we see uh, later that they are supposed to bring to this feast an offering, most likely a food offering, from the first grain harvest, a barley harvest, most likely, just before this festival. And so they bring grain to the Lord and give an offering as they come and worship. The next feast is the Feast of the Harvest, also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost because it took place 50 days after the celebration of the Passover. And this feast is found in verse 16. You shall keep the Feast of Harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. Okay, 
The emphasis of this feast is that it is at the completion of the harvest. And the purpose of this feast is to thank God, to show gratitude for his provision for another year of providing the harvest they needed. And this would be, excuse me, the, the main grain harvest, most likely wheat. There are more t- details that come later in Leviticus 23 that when they came to this harvest, they would bring an offering of two loaves of salted bread and a variety of animal sacrifices and free will offerings. And again, this is a worshipful celebration of God's covenant faithfulness, especially in the harvest. The third feast is also found in verse 16, and it is the feast of ingathering, the feast of tabernacles, or the feast of booths. Perhaps you've heard those uh, labels more than the feast of ingathering. And this is the instruction in verse 16. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. So again, at the end of another period of harvest, and this would be primarily the harvest of second crop grains and uh, tree or vine fruits. Okay? Um, So when they come together for this feast... Uh, Again, we see more detail in Leviticus 23. But they bring this offering from their second crop grains and their tree and vine crops. And this happened after the fifth, or five days after the Day of Atonement, when they would come together and the priest would offer sacrifices to atone temporarily for their sins. And uh, and so in order to stay together for now to celebrate this feast of booths or tabernacles, they would have had to construct field tents or huts or booths so they could all remain in the same place to worship and celebrate this feast. And again, the priority is Godward. It is to recognize who God is and what he's done, what he's given to us yet again, his faithfulness, and to celebrate. Now look at verse 17. It says something interesting. It says, three times in the year, again, the same pattern. So presumably at these three feasts, three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. Well, what does that mean? Why the males and our only males participating in the feasts? uh, What does this look like? Well, the idea here is that all of the families would come and participate in the celebrations. But God had designated male headship, male representation from each family to gather at the tabernacle where he would soon give them the Ark of the Covenant, the, the representation of his glory and his presence among them. And the men of each household would come as a representative of their family and worship at the tabernacle. All right. So those are the feasts that God instructs. This is the, the annual schedule now of what it looks like in ancient Israel to worship God during this time. Then we see in the last verses of this text, there are conditions that God gives for the offerings that he will accept. Because he has to instruct these people who are, not only have they been with uh, Uh, idol worshipers, right? For the past 400 years, their people have been with the Egyptians. They're also influenced very often by the other people groups around them who are not only idolaters, but polytheists. They have many gods. And so God is now instructing them on what requirements, what stipulations he has for them as they come bring their offerings and their sacrifices. In order to consecrate them, to set them apart and their worship for himself, he gave four laws to differentiate their worship from that of the surrounding pagan nations. And they have to do with offering uncommon worship 
worship that was not like the nations around them because this was an uncommon God. This was a God who is unique among all so-called gods. And so just, it was just as if God is saying, just because I am unique and because I am holy, so also will my worship be unique and set apart. And so we see in verses 18 and 19, four laws for how they were to sacrifice and offer. The first one, in verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Now, there are two ideas that are mainly accepted as possibilities for what this was to mean. Because for us, we're like, okay, the blood of the sacrifice mixed with anything leavened, that's not really familiar to us. However, remember the Passover. Remember what God commanded for his people. Remember the symbolism, the, the illustration of leaven as an agent that corrupts. As, a, as, a, as an illustration of sin and corruption among God's people. And so it makes sense that if the people are offering these animal sacrifices when they come to God, that they don't mix those with something that is leavened. The other idea is that it was somewhat common in the pagan nations around them to drink and eat blood in some form or another as, as a ritual of worship to a false deity. And especially because they understood that the life of an animal or a human, of a living being, is in the blood. And so now the idea here is to maybe prolong or promote health uh, to, to, of the life of someone who's going to imbibe this blood or eat it in some way. And so God is also perhaps instructing his people, don't worship me in that way. For one thing, they were already instructed not to eat the blood of an animal um, and sometimes, because as you can imagine, blood is probably not very pleasant to consume, uh, they would mix blood in with something like a bread, okay, so that it was more palatable. And so God is saying, don't do that. Don't do what the pagan nations are doing. Don't look to blood and some sort of weird religious ritual that involves your consumption of blood as your hope for health and life. That's idolatry. The next thing he says is, don't let the fat remain until morning. Don't let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The idea here, um, it is more, uh, there's a fuller explanation in Leviticus 3, verses 16 and 17, which says, the priest shall burn them, the sacrifices on the altar, as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. So now we see here another principle that this fat, which by the way, animal fat would have been a very valued uh, product, not just for food, but also for a lot of other uses. And so perhaps the people would have been tempted to, to withhold some of that for their own personal use. But God says in Leviticus 3 that all of the fat of your sacrifices, all of the fat of your offerings is for the Lord. None of it is to be kept for yourself. And that is consistent with the next principle that we see in verse 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So the idea here is that you are to give God what is first and what is best. 
And so certainly withholding something from God is to cheat God of what he deserves. So this verse now moves from possible abuse of an animal offering to possible abuse of a crop offering. And you could imagine that if someone's bringing grains or vegetables or whatever harvest, uh, fruits or, or whatever from their, their crop harvest as an offering to the Lord, well, they could have left something at home, right? They could have saved the best and the first for their family's enjoyment, as long as the neighbors weren't too nosy. Uh, or, you know, maybe they say, saved the prize-winning pumpkin for the fair and didn't bring it to God in his offering. And so that would have been possible and likely. So God is now prohibiting that. Give God your best and your first. It would have been a little bit more difficult to leave a portion of an animal at home since you had to bring a whole live animal. Okay, But this is a possibility. Don't give God what is secondary. Don't give to God or reserve for God what is an afterthought. God is not satisfied with being an afterthought or being secondary. I wonder if for us today, as we think about our worship, do we give God the first and the best? Do we prioritize and value God to the level that he deserves so that what we're giving him is not leftover, not an afterthought, not begrudgingly, not wishing that there was another way, not trusting in our means and our finances so much that we're not willing to give an offering. The last restriction here on worship is very strange. I highly doubt that any of you were planning to go home this afternoon and boil a goat in its mother's milk. It's just unlikely. So why this strange prohibition? Do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, again, there are a couple ideas um, some from historical data that show that other nations would have done this, would have practiced this. It was a Canaanite fertility rite uh, to, to, you know, take a doe and, and her milk and then take her kid and then boil that kid, kill the, the, that goat in its mother's milk as some sort of sacrifice so that the gods of fertility would bless their herd and produce uh, more of a flock for them the next year. So that was a practice, and certainly I would think God is prohibiting worship like these idolaters. Uh, another thing that's really uh, interesting, though, is that this seems to be a violation of what we could call natural law. And natural law, in, in, for our purposes, is just simply what makes sense according to God's design for what he's made. What is the normal and the good, and the best, and the reasonable use for the things that God has made. And so certainly, when we think about this situation, what God has made, the milk of the mother goat, the doe goat, is made to promote and nourish and, and build up life and health in, the, in that young goat, right? And so that is the purpose of it. And Kevin DeYoung succinctly helps us to understand that simply what was made to produce life should not be used to produce death. What was made for the purpose of producing and sustaining life should not be flipped on its head and used in a corrupted way, in an unnatural way. Think about the many ways that fallen people have taken 
everything that God has made and called good, every design, every object, and subverted the good design of God and corrupted things such as sex, marriage, gender, and gender roles. We, as the human race, have chosen to take things that God has made and called good and things that have a clear and obvious purpose and we have turned them on their head to corrupt them and to make them not only sinful but unnatural. And that's what's going on here. God warned that in all these prohibitions, he wants his people to, to avoid anything that would tarnish or corrupt the worship that he was to receive from them. They were to be holy because he is holy. And because he is holy, the worship he receives from his people is also to be holy and set apart. Now, the next heading there that you see in your notes, if you have them, I want this to be more than a history lesson, okay? And sometimes that's difficult with a text like this. You know, there's a lot of rules and regulations and feasts and festivals and things that we don't, we're not practicing. We're not under this law. And so they're, they're strange and foreign to us. But I don't want this to be like, okay, well, that was really interesting. I'm glad I learned a little bit of history today. I hope that we can see God's law for its use for us as a mirror and a guide. So, because these laws are not our context, we are not ancient Israel, um, we need to see that even though we live under a new covenant mediated by a better priest who fulfilled all the commands of the old covenant in our place, there are still principles for us to follow, right? Let's talk a little bit about a new covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant. This is, this is under the Aaronic priesthood, the Levite priesthood. And God is giving all these laws for his people in this time and place for their purpose. But now we are no longer under that covenant, right? And so we have to understand how does this law apply to us? How do we gain anything from it without it just being a fascinating history lesson? Look at what Hebrews 7.12 says about a new priesthood and a new law. It says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And so we understand that a new priest has come. And the Bible is very clear that that priest is our great high priest, Jesus Christ himself. And he mediates for us in his blood a new covenant so that we are no longer under the covenant made with Israel, under Moses. Tom Schreiner writes, The prediction and the arrival of this new priesthood means that the Aaronic priesthood and the Mosaic law are no longer in force for us, for the church today. Christians no longer live under the old covenant. So, we do not strictly adhere to all of the ceremonial law and all of the civil law and all of the, the, the parameters of, of God's instruction for his people then. However, we do live under the moral principles that come from those laws. Because God gives those laws based on his moral character, based on his nature, based on an objective standard of what is right and wrong according to who he is. And his unchanging morality 
means that we can discern for us today moral principles that still apply because they come from his character. They still guide our conduct as we seek to worship and live in obedience to him, as we seek to love him and love neighbor. So we look for these timeless principles, and I'd like to list some of them that we can glean from this text. First of all, in a very real sense, Christ is our Sabbath. Christ is our Sabbath rest. He fulfilled God's law in our place, which we could not do, and we rest in his work. The law was insufficient to save. Look at what Hebrews 10.1 says about the law. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law was insufficient, even with its sacrifices, even with the temporal atonement that the animal blood sacrifices brought for the people of God to keep them in fellowship with him, that was insufficient, ultimately, to remove their guilt and to please and satisfy the wrath of God. The law could not save. But Christ, in Hebrews ten twelve, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And in him we find our rest no longer working to maintain over and over these works of the law, to try to adhere to the law, and when we fail, come back with an animal sacrifice year after year to cover and atone for our sin and our failure. Those were just a shadow of the things to come. The perfect, acceptable sacrifice, who is the Lamb of God himself, who is sufficient to make us right with God, to sit down and rest at the right hand of God, and we enter into his rest. So we can truly find our rest, our Sabbath in Christ, who made us pleasing to God forever. But Sabbath as a rhythm, as a pattern for us to live by, is tied to creation, not just the law of Moses. We see it from the very beginning, because God worked in six days and then rested on the seventh. So also, you should rest. And so the principle... Many Christians disagree on how exactly it should be applied. There are very strict Sabbatarians who say that Sunday should always be. It's the Lord's Day, the day of Christ's resurrection. And so the church recognizes that as a day of rest and a day of worship. And that is reasonable. Some would say that uh, Saturday is the appropriate Sabbath day following after Israel. Some would say that you cannot do any labor, any work on Sunday, on the Sabbath day. And so we fall in different applications. But the principle, the important principle for us, is that there must be a regularly scheduled time of rest and worship for us as God's people. So, if we're not, whatever that looks like, right? Whatever the rest for us looks like, if we're not giving ourselves rest from our labor, regular, periodic rest, then we are not living... And perhaps we're denying others from living the life God intended us to live. It's an important principle. And it may look like rest from technology. Perhaps we can't rest because we're so enthralled with social media or the internet or constant communication that comes through the devices that we hold in our hands. 
Whatever that rest looks like, there are all kinds of ways to apply the principle of Sabbath. But clearly the church has recognized that there is a day set aside each week for corporate worship and rest from the week's normal labors. Confessing our need for rest and rhythm in this way actually is a great benefit to us. Now, to some people, they would say, well, I want to make my own schedule, and I want to use my time however I want. And so I'm going to just be as productive as I can be and ignore this idea of a need for rest. I'm not going to belong to God, but I'm going to belong to myself. Think of the catechism question. But this pattern, as we see of all God's laws, this pattern of rest is good for his people. It produces health and flourishing. The second thing I want us to see is that worship of God is still exclusive. God hasn't changed his mind about how he is to be worshipped by his people. He doesn't share his glory. He doesn't share his worship with another God or with our own self-idolatry. He is the only Savior and the only Lord. Our context, of course, isn't leaving fields fallow every seventh year, or rejecting pagan good luck charms or fertility practices. And we don't bring grain and animal offerings, but we bring offerings and tithes, and we bring our worship, and we worship with our schedules and our finances and our energy and our aspirations. And so there should be a litmus test to see how we're doing. What is our value system? We don't have the same form of worship, but we have the same God who is worthy of all of our worship. Number three, we don't have the feasts and the festivals that Israel had to celebrate, but we still have reminders in our worship. We still have a feast. God has given the church a feast so that with the use of our senses, our hearts can be reminded of the salvation that he has provided, that he has delivered us from Egypt. He has delivered us from slavery to sin. And though God said in verse six or 15, no one is to come to me empty-handed, there's a, there's a true gospel principle here. Obviously, the context is worship, and we are to come to God with sacrificial worship, Worship costs us something. We give of ourselves in order to worship God. However, in a gospel sense, as we think about our relationship in the first place with God, we can only come empty-handed. We had nothing to bring to God. There was nothing we could do that would be acceptable worship. We were failures. So God invited us to come empty-handed. In Isaiah 55, 1, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So God invites us, knowing our insufficiency, our inability to bring anything that's acceptable and pleasing to him on our own. Come empty-handed and buy without price. So now, having seen the price that was paid for us, the good gift of his own son, we come to God clothed in his righteousness. He has made us and our worship acceptable to God so that we, like Paul says in Romans 12, 1, can by the mercies of God 
present our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is our spiritual worship. May we be to the praise of his glorious grace. Lord, thank you again for your word. You are so kind to have given us this instruction, to have shown us what you require of your people, to give us this glimpse of your character and your holiness, how distinct and unique you are among all your creation and among false gods that have been conjured up by human minds. And God, you have shown us that your holiness requires that we come to you on your terms and we worship you on your terms. Father, I pray that with pure hearts, with sincerity of understanding and and truth, that we would approach you presenting our bodies as living sacrifices and that our worship, because of Christ and only Christ and his righteousness, that our worship would be acceptable to you and you would be pleased in us. We are not our own, but we were bought with a price. Therefore, let us be to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.